if you have a concept of time marked by the center of the cross pointing towards eternity and towards a vision of Revelation 20, Revelation 7, then you're working towards something beautiful and you're working towards what is really real. You see, this fallen earth, if we think that we're putting all of our hope in this, this is not the really real. This is the proximate or the penultimate, leaning into the ultimate. And it's important to have that mindset. And, you know, Christians who have that mindset are willing to lay down their life for their friends. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. You've probably heard the phrase, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. The problem is, is that most of the time, we don't think about history as much more than stuff that simply happened. It really doesn't seem to have much more bearing on the things right in front of us, the things that take up our time and attention. But what if our connection to history, our view of time itself, is directly connected to how we approach the world around us, to how we see it and interact with it, to how we should connect to the people around us? It turns out that our connection to history is not irrelevant or dry or boring, but in fact, it's vital to pursuing Christ's mission today. That's why I've invited today's guest onto the show, Dr. Scott Sunquist who is the president and professor of missiology at my alma mater, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, about his book, The Shape of History. Dr. Sunquist brings together two of my favorite things. These are a few of my favorite things. Missiology and history. Doesn't really go in the song, but it, he brings it together in a very intriguing and down-to-earth way. It's, it's not at all boring. And in fact, it's both important and useful to the church today. So let's meet Dr. Sunquist and learn how understanding Christian history changes everything for our pursuit of Christ's mission today. And be sure to pay attention after the show as we're starting a new segment highlighting you, our listening audience. Now, let's dive in to my conversation with Dr. Sunquist. Scott Sunquist, welcome to Apollo's Water. Hey, thanks. You're so good to be here. I have nothing to do. I'm just sitting here in my office as a seminary president, hoping somebody would call me or send an angry email. <laughs> I've had a lot of introductions on the show, but that I have to say is the most original. <laughs> Thank you. It's true. It's true. Just thank you. <laughs> okay, number one. How about this one? You're prof- I mean, yeah. first of all, are you ready for the fast five? Sure, sure. Okay, number one, and this is an easy one to ease into, your preferred breakfast meal. Well, I fast two days a week, and so that would be coffee. That's all I have. The rest of the days, it's a banana. It's a banana. Just a banana. Yep. Oh, you're not a breakfast person. Um, I can be if somebody will pay for my breakfast and we go out. (laughs) But if I'm just sitting at home, I read my Bible, have a cup of coffee and a banana. All right. How about this one? How about number two? If I could be a genre of music, I would be what and why? You or me? You. You, not me. me. If you could oh, be. I, I would probably be uh, 
uh, Baroque. Um, I like Baroque. I can listen to that all day, you know, Bach inventions and that sort of yeah, thing. It's... But I, I listen to everything. I listen to contemporary jazz and everything. Not, not much rap. Okay. Okay. Uh, but I knew you liked classical music because you mentioned that in the book. What made you, I mean, this isn't one of the questions, but what made you get into classical music? Were you always a fan or was there a moment you go, wow. I, I didn't know what I was going to do in college. And I, uh, I was playing soccer and then all of a sudden got some injuries and I said, I better focus on my studies. And so I said, what am I going to study? And so I just said, I'm going to study classical opera and classical symphony. <laughs> And so out of the blue, <laughs> I took these great courses by Dr. Laura Hoggard, and he was excellent. And we just listened to opera and classical symphony uh, for three hours a week. And, um, and and I was hooked. What? Where did you go to school? University of North Carolina, a little place in Chapel Hill. Oh, a little place in Chapel Hill. <laughs> All right. Number three. Now, you travel quite a bit. I mean, you, you are a trained missiologist, which means, which always warms my heart because I want to know. The country that you've traveled to that has the best food outside of the U.S. is where and what is it? Yeah, that's it's probably got to be Singapore. We lived there for uh, eight years and they've got everything. You've got uh, Thai food, you've got South China food, you've got North China food, you've got Indonesian food, you've got South Indian food, North Indian food. And so you go to a hawker stall and you can get what you like. And so we love most Asian foods, but Singapore is the place because you, you get it on, you get people from South India that are there. It's not like, you know, America, you go to a Chinese restaurant. They said, Oh, Americans, you know, we can't have it real spicy. Mm. So you get the real thing. Ooh, which I, I, I know I've heard that those who do, I mean, just with Chinese food, they do have to do everything American. They have to make it sweeter. They have to put sugar into it. Yeah, it's yeah. not the real deal. Hmm. How yeah. about this one? Number four, your funniest cross-cultural experience. Well, I can't talk about that. Uh, that would not be. <laughs> what stays on it the mission field. <laughs> yeah, it would be appropriate. But I, I do remember a number of times I went to the uh, uh, Presbytery meeting in Singapore and it was in mostly Chinese. Uh, and then they would translate some to me, but they would call the role in Chinese. Huh. And somebody have to hit me and, and tell me uh, that they called my name uh, so I could answer. And so everybody looks back like, what's wrong with you? You don't even know your name. I said, no, I really don't know my name. <laughs> <laughs> well, how about this? So that was that, great. I, I like that. I mean, how do you say your name in Chinese? Do you know? I have no idea. <laughs> I never got it. <laughs> Number five question. If you could be a country of the world other than the U.S., what country would you be and why? Well, it's hard to be. That's hard, hard, hard to talk about because I, I like somebody, probably Lebanon. Oh. Uh, Lebanon has such great, I'm a historian, has such great history. It's just a small country, but it's got some Europe in it. It's got some West Asia. It's got some Africa in it. It's got ancient history, one of the largest temples in the world in uh, Baalbek. Uh, And it's got the mountains. It's got the uh, ancient ruins of the monks who lived up in the mountain caves. And I guess because I'm a historian, I'd go to someplace like that. Mm. I've been to Lebanon and there is so much history and culture. I've really enjoyed that. Yeah. It's at, out of the Mediterranean yeah. countries. I mean, that's one, like I think of not Mediterranean, but those, the MENA region. Yeah. Uh, Middle East, yeah. North Africa, then uh, Lebanon and Alexandria, Egypt is. Yeah. 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 And actually, if you let me talk about it long enough, I could probably give you my top 20 countries that I'd like uh. to live in. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, you know, when you travel a lot and you just say, well, you know, we're going to have to live here in Singapore. We're going to have to live here in, you know, Cal- Pasadena, California. You find what's good and you lean into it. And so we lived in Pittsburgh, which I never would have chosen to live there. But, man, we found some really great things to lean into and enjoyed it and so forth. We went to Pasadena. My wife never wanted to live in California, but we leaned into some really cool things there and enjoyed it. And same is true in Sabah. We lived there for taught a couple terms there in, in uh, East Malaysia, uh, China. I love Hong Kong. I love Shanghai. Our daughter lived near Xi'an. We like that. So um, I, I'm a I try to be inclusive about these things. <laughs> That's a very presidential way of going about that. <laughs> yes, God bless every one of us. <laughs> How about this? Let, well, let me ask this question then. Tell us. Well, just tell us a bit about yourself. You've given. A, I mean, you've traveled. You've taught. But tell us a little yeah. about your faith journey and how you got to where you're at today in a, in a real brief, because we're limited on time today. You're a president who has nothing yeah, to do. Yeah, yeah. I'll, make, <laughs> I'll make it brief. Even though I'm very old, I'll give you the condensed version. Um, I, I was raised in a Christendom family uh, and didn't know much about, didn't really have a personal faith at all until somebody invited me when I was 16 years old to a Bible study in the home. And here's a shout out for Campus Crusade or crew. Uh, this guy had came to a, a person's house in our church and there were eight of us. We'd come there and he would just tell us about the Bible. But after eight weeks, he said, how come you're not inviting your friends? He assumed that you always would invite your friends. And I said, well, that we have a good thing going here. You know, we all get along. Why would we want to invite somebody else who might not be nice? You know, some weirdo or something. Cause we're all cool people. And we were, we were cheerleaders and basketball players and everything. So he said, well, don't you know what it means to be a Christian? And I said, sure. You, you know, you're born in a Christian family and you go to church and, you know, he says, oh, you think if you're born in a garage or a car, you know, and all of a sudden I, I thought I'm going to have to rethink this thing. But anyway, he challenged me that Jesus brought a question to everybody. And that question is, will you follow me or not? And I'd never answered that question. So that night I answered that question that completely redirected my life. And it led to making a decision about college based on are there Christian fellowships there. I got a soccer scholarship, but I didn't want to go someplace where I wouldn't get a good Christian fellowship. And they had great uh, university group there at Chapel Hill. I made a decision about my wife, praying about that. You know, we had had perfect alignment in uh, our desires, and we knew that this was forever. So all those decisions followed from a decision I made when I was 16 years old. Uh, to make a long story short, I went on InterVarsity staff after attending Urbana and we signed the card and felt that God was calling us overseas. I had never, I don't think I'd ever met a missionary before I went to Urbana at the age of 22, actually 23, because I was out of college. And uh, then I met missionaries and uh, I thought, oh my gosh, what am I doing? I'm sitting around here. I've got like eight or 10 Bibles on my shelf and there are people who've never seen the Bible, never heard about Jesus. God's got to be able to use me somewhere. And so we uh, prepared by going on university staff and then going to Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, where I did an MDiv, and then went to Princeton, where I did a PhD in early Asian Christianity, and then taught uh, for eight years uh, in, in Singapore. I taught Asian Christianity. That was my focus. So my specialty is Asian Christianity from really the first century up till last week is what I teach. And then, uh, then was not planning on coming back to the States, but within 10 days had four requests to interview for a job as a white male. <laughs> I didn't have a book published, I didn't have an article published, I didn't have a resume. So I figured this must be from God. 
And so after the third one, I told my wife, I didn't even tell her after the first three, because <laughs> I didn't want to leave. I had so much work to do there. Uh, but then we uh, took the job at Pittsburgh Seminary because they had never had anybody teach mission in 202 years. So I said, this is a place where they need somebody to teach mission. And I was there for a lot longer than I thought. And then uh, the dean's job at uh, the Fuller's School of Intercultural Studies was a great time uh, for us, for me to grow as a leader and to inspire faculty to write books. That was one of my uh, main things. And you have one of the book series there, I think, in your shelf behind you. But two different series uh, we started, and uh, it was a great experience, a very productive time for us. And then when I was thinking about retiring, uh, I got the call at Gordon Conwell. I said, oh, shoot, let's go ahead and work another 10 years or so. So um, I've been here four years and uh, in the midst of a pivot. But in, in that time of all that travel and teaching, uh, God has given me opportunities to research and write in areas I never thought I would uh, write about before. Uh, we have, I had one wife, four kids and 12 grandkids, six boys, six girls. We try to make it even, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, if you're into Hebraic structures, it's like, you know, A, A prime, B, B prime. So you get where I'm going. And we also have, that would be a soccer team with one substitute. <laughs> um, as you said before, you are an author who's, I mean, you're, you're a historian and what, what made your interest in Asian Christianity specifically? We sponsored a Vietnamese refugee family, Hung, Hong, Nok Yan, and Lin. And Hong was a widow. And uh, so we looked after them in our house for a year. And if you have a refugee family live in your house for a year, that will turn your heart toward where they're from. Uh, they were refugees. They were boat people, ended up in Malaysia. And uh, when they came to the States, they knew no English. They each had one grocery bag with a, a change of clothes, and that's all. So that uh, changed our lives. And so we knew it was Asia, the greatest needs are in Asia. And uh, so uh, I, I looked to study with somebody who was an Asian historian, that was Sam Moffat, uh, who had worked in Korea and was working on history of Christianity in Asia book. Uh, so, yeah, so it was one of those acts, providential things where you're sitting with your Bible study at home and there's a magazine that says, wanted sponsors for Vietnamese refugees, 24 hour hotline. And so being as reckless as I am, I said, oh, let's call and see what they want, you know? And so the next thing I know, I've committed to a widow and four kids. And three weeks later, wrote, drove from Charlottesville to Richmond and picked them up. I am amazed at how so many people that I see have an interest in global Christianity can trace that back to working with refugees in different cultures. Just, yeah. You have this heart for the nations, yeah. which brings me to yeah. your book, The Shape of Christian History. I mean, even put your title on there. How did you get that? What in the world? Yeah, I don't know. They, this, is, this was not my design. As a matter of fact, I rejected the first three. Don't tell University <laughs> Press. I like the post there. But, <laughs> it looked, it's a little retro. Yeah. It's a little retro. And I would, not, I would put my name in small print. But I, 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 I'd never seen someone have the president title on there. Usually they just do the name. But they did. Yeah. So yeah. what was the purpose of this book? Well, didn't you I read, it? read it, says. it? But the people need to know. <laughs> I read it. Okay. <laughs> I had I had been writing for about twenty five years Christian history, and when I write, the publishers don't want me to use adjectives. You can't say that they were fierce or they were angry. You just have to describe what they did, because that becomes a judgment. And I realized the Enlightenment and Enlightenment scientific thinking has so overwhelmed history that we're doing bad history writing. That's why history is boring. 
But history, um, I was convinced, has to be told as a narrative. It was a story. And it's beautiful. It's fascinating. It's just you enter into people's lives. And I was so frustrated by that. So um, I understand because if you want your history book to be sold at a Roman Catholic seminary and in a major university and an evangelical school and a Baptist school, you have to be as neutral as you can. So then I was asked, uh, I think it's, it's written in the forward or preface somewhere, to do a lecture on how to write Christian history uh, to for scholars in China at Shanghai University, which was a totally Maoist university. It was one of the few major universities not started by missionaries. It was started during the Maoist period. And so the head of the history department, I think, was probably sort of a closet Christian or a culture Christian, as they call them. And he said his, he was really having trouble when he taught about Christianity. Uh, and they had a lot of people interested in Christianity. They couldn't understand it. That why did these people come to China? You know, why, why would they come here and die or their wife would die and they would continue to stay here and work? and suffer disease and all this stuff and be away from their family as a Confucianist. What in the world would you leave your mom and dad? You're supposed to take care of them. And so I was standing there giving a lecture about this. And all of a sudden it struck me uh, that, that Christianity is, is centered set. And if it's centered set, it's all based around the cross. And that's when I asked the question of the class. Uh, oh, well, to understand why Christians do what they do, you know, what do you see on top of a church? And only two people knew in the class of about 25 or 30. And this one girl raised her hand and she says, a cross, sir. I said, yeah, a cross. I said, what does that mean? And she raised her hand. She stood up and she said, I do not know, sir. <laughs> I thought, whoa, how are you going to study Christian history or the history of Christianity in China if you don't even know what the cross means? And so I realized that, that in order to explain Christian history, you have to explain it on its own terms what Christians claim they're doing. Now, they can be doing it poorly, and then you can critique it, or they can be doing it great, but they can, you critique it on their own terms. And so the example that I use is if you're going to be writing the history of gangs in New York City, you're going to have to study something about the economy, about housing, about schools and you know neighborhoods. Those would be the things you'd focus on. You might not focus on climate, uh, but if you're studying the history of Christianity, You've got to know the basic narrative. And I, I, the three basic elements that I write about are time, cross, and glory. And so that becomes the outline for the book. And uh, the reason I, I, I wrote this is because I said, I need to put together what I've been doing the last 25 or 30 years. What drives me? And what do I think needs to be the driving elements as we study church history? Otherwise, why in the world are we teaching it in seminary? You know, who cares that we study history? We should just study the Bible, right? No, we need to study history because if we have a mindset of time, cross, and glory, then as we study the history, we have some way of critiquing what's been going on. Sunlight, dearest sunlight, I am calling you across the old room. Sunlight, Dearest sunlight, I would like to come out of the womb. You, when I saw the outline, I really wondered where you were going. I, I honestly, I, I had seen the book and a brief history of history, time, creation, incarnation, cross, the cruciform and apostolic nature of Christianity, glory, the humility and hope of heaven. And I thought, what, what's going on here? You start off with time 
and really appreciation of time in a way that you juxtaposed against uh, other conceptions of time, the cyclical nature and other faiths, which I actually thought was very eye-opening for me, uh, and especially in our modern uh, our modern cultural moment. But why is time, and it, as you put it in there, creation and incarnation so important for understanding history? Because most people in the world, and, and I, I learned this from some of our seminary students we sent to Vietnam, most people in the world don't really have hope because they know that things are just going to go around and it doesn't really matter, you know? And so there's no reason to build on something for the next generation or to think about what we might accomplish. So any sense of progress and the, the age of progress was a bittersweet thing in the, in the 19th and early 20th century. Uh, it, it comes out of Christianity and it would never come out of nature religions. It's not going to come out of Buddhism or Hinduism or anything, because for all of them and for ancient humans, they understood that that people would kind of grow and they build buildings and civilizations would develop. And there'd be a great conflagration, a great, uh, uh, a great burning, everything would burn down. And then it starts over again. It begins to build up, builds up, then it all burns down. And it, it, so it's hopeless to try to progress or do anything forward looking. But if you have a concept of time marked by the center of the cross pointing towards eternity and towards a vision of Revelation 20, Revelation 7, then you're working towards something beautiful and you're working towards what is really real. You see, this fallen earth, if we think that we're putting all of our hope in this, this is not the really real. This is the proximate or the penultimate, leaning into the ultimate. And it's important to have that mindset. And, you know, Christians who have that mindset are willing to lay down their life for their friends. But if they think this is all there is or it's all going to die, it doesn't really matter. Oh, but it matters so much. It matters so much, not that we fulfill ourselves, but that we die to self. The cross is the center of all things so that others might live. And that's pointing towards the, the, the eternity where there will be no more tears. So it matters a lot. And what we don't realize as Christians, we just assume everybody thinks about time as progressing or moving forward. Um, and then we can also take a look at the great tragedies of what's going on in the world as the sign of the fallenness of all of time and all of creation. And we can critique it and we can weep over it because we care about this creation. A closely related element to that is, um, is being marked by the very image of God. And so each of us individuals are not just chemicals, you know, spinning around. You got a great story about that. Can I tell you stories? I don't yes. Know I was oh, yes, please. I was at this really fancy meal with, with students from MIT and Harvard and some professors and then a few pastors. But it was a special gathering where they raised money to bring together secular academics with Christian academics. I sat at this table and we were talking about um, eternity. Is there eternity? And so I had two Ph.D. students in uh, from Harvard, and I think they were studying May have been chemistry, but it doesn't really matter because uh, they're, they're talking about the ultimate questions. And so we talked about, do people live forever? Okay. And of course, they believe no. So no, we don't, we don't live forever. We just, our bodies go into earth and they decay and then it's all over. And uh, this one guy said, yeah, that's why we really shouldn't uh, waste time and money on people when they get older to try to keep them alive because it uses up a lot of our resources. And if you want to save the planet, 
we really shouldn't waste time and money on older people. So I think probably when people get around, you know, 65 or 70, we should just terminate them. So we don't have to, I said, wait, said again. <laughs> when they get like 65 or 70, we should terminate them. I said, I take that very personally. <laughs> that's me. Look at me. You're saying that I'm wasting your resources. Oh, oh, oh well, oh, maybe 75. <laughs> He's getting old, man. Well, you had, this is a Harvard PhD. He hadn't thought this through very much. So, so thinking about time and value of humans, for him, the planet Earth had become God. And among all things, we have to save planet Earth. Humans are just a part of the, the chemicals that, that bash around and they go back into the Earth and they're gone. So time crossing glory. Time is a creator. God created. And what did he create? He created this beautiful creation, which is going to be recreated and revived and renewed and redeemed. But also he put his very image in that creation. So it matters what you think about creation and time and where it's going. And it matters a lot and, and it will develop into certain ethics and a historiography of how we, we tell the story about history. <laughs> After reading it, well, seeing it woven throughout, you really give hope. That's kind of the overarching theme with this. Even time, as you said, it's it has this progression. And you mentioned how in the Tamil language, there is no word for hope, which I, I thought was very interesting. Why did you feel like we needed to, to see that, to understand it? To understand how hope is a Christian. Hope is so Christian. It's not Hindu. It's not Buddhist. It's not even Islamic. And it, 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 I traveled with some Muslims on a bus once in, in, in Malaysia, and the bus ran almost ran over a bicyclist who went down over a cliff and everybody got over and looked and they said, it is the will of Allah. Okay. Now there's no hope there. It's all, it's all, yeah, it's the will of Allah. Allah is, is, will do whatever he wants. And, and the Christian would have stopped the bus because we have hope of saving a life and of helping somebody. And so hope is so Christian in the way we live and how we live and how we sacrifice for others. Because we know this is not the end. We have hope in an eternity, which is much far more beautiful and gorgeous and exciting and, and rich. And therefore, I thought that was important to say. So you tell Christian history differently than secular history, certainly Marxist history. I think I talk in there about how tragic uh, the eschatology of Marxism is because you want to force an immediate uh, fulfillment of history and you force it through revolution revolutions. And you end up with Stalin's Russia or you end up with Mao's China. You do mention that in the book. You, you brought that out. And I thought that was a very eye-opening thing to, to take it into that lens. Usually, and you mentioned, you mentioned this, that history is not, a, not it's that it's some ways perspectival, but you do talk about it being a story and that it's not just a record of the facts. You address some of the common misconceptions of the, how people have actually gone about history. And that's why you mentioned bad history. How do we differentiate and how can we tell if there's a bad history or a good history? That's a very good question. And that's why we need a lot of historians working together in community. I'll tell you, bad history is driven by ideologies. Ideologies are lenses through which you have to see all of reality. 
And, uh, and we have that lens through scripture that helps us to see reality. But if your lens is one, let's say, of, of power plays or, or control or everything is about power and oppressor, you're either an oppressor or the oppressed. If you see it that way, that kind of dichotomy, you're missing out on so much. And uh, that is an ideology. And all ideologies tend towards violence. An ideology is an idol. It is something that must, you must think is, for example, in some churches now, uh, if you can't check off that you're an inclusive church, I won't talk to you any further. In other words, that's the litmus test. That's the lens that I look through. It's an ideology of sexual plurality. And for others, it's, uh, I have students that come with a decolonialist uh, ideology that everything is about the oppressive colonists and the innocent uh, and indigenous peoples around the world. And they're coming to seminary now from universities where that's where they've been taught. And missionaries, because they have white skin, are evil. They're oppressive. And to teach a student a different way of looking about these things, that everybody is in the image of God and fallen. And every culture, every culture is in the image of God and fallen. So those uh, imperialists that came from Europe are fallen, but also those tribes in West Africa are fallen. And they, many of them were cooperating to enslave their own people. And so in order to see those things, you really have to look with, the, I say, the eyes of Christ, the lens of scripture and the whole story, in order to find out that this dark thread, dark, sinful uh, uh, thread runs through every heart and every culture. But also, as I described, there's the beautiful red thread that runs through every culture in all of history. And that's the gospel story that counteracts that. But if you don't see that, if you see everything through your ideology, your lens, you will not be able to appreciate and see what God is doing. In the book, you, and I'm glad you brought up the colonial aspect of it. I had another gentleman who will name, remain nameless in a conversation on the show and He'd mentioned, he goes, you know, you need to be talking about colonialism. And I thought, well, colonialism, like anything, there's there's good and there's bad with it. You actually hit that. You address that there was evil. You even give worst case scenarios and how the gospel still went forth despite that evil. But you showed that it's oftentimes labeled unfairly, if you will, and, and, and that there was a, a lot more at stake than just colonialism. You bring out the gospel and even showing how it wasn't all about white people going around. You mentioned the 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 instance of the Tahitians taking the gospel to Hawaii and then missionaries showing up and there's already a missions presence, which I was, I thought that was awesome. Uh, uh, Seeing that kind of that, as Alan Ye calls it, that polycentric, it's everyone everywhere sharing the gospel, going back and forth. You also mentioned, if I remember correctly, of an Egyptian man who was going into Asia, sharing the gospel as a medical doctor. And And I thought that was really phenomenal. I love the fact that you put it in time and it, and you brought out this hope aspect, but you also brought out the cruciform nature, which I thought was a nice response to the, I think you called it the innovation and the pragmatic addiction that we have right now, yeah. where that's all it's about. And you're saying, no, 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 we have to get back to the cruciform nature to understand suffering is part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. It's not all about the technique that's going to solve your church problems to attract it. We have to disciple and catechize our people so that they might understand this role of suffering. Why is it so important to include that cruciform nature to our work? Why do pastors need to bring that back and Christian leaders and really focus on that? 
Well, first of all, it's biblical. You can't get much more biblical <laughs> than that the gospel it will spread through our participation in the suffering Christ. And I say the suffering Christ because at the end of Luke, there's a reflection where Luke says, was it not necessary that the Messiah should first suffer and then be glorified? And um, the, the subtitle of my mission book is Participation in Suffering and Glory. So I've been on this theme for about 20 years, and I think it needs to be recovered that the cruciform apostolicity might sound like an awkward expression, but it's a good reminder that the church and individuals in the church are invited to participate in this cruciform apostolicity. In other words, we conquer through emptiness. You know, we win through humility not by taking up arms, but by denying ourselves. And it's counterintuitive, but it's so biblical. You know, we are the vessels. Then if we are emptied, we can be poured in with God's Holy Spirit. But if we're full, meaning full of ourselves, the work that we do is shallow, hollow, and it won't last. And so we seek to bring about genuine transformation through our own emptiness. I cannot tell you the number of people when I talk about that. Well, here's an example. When I did my mission book, before it even came out, an African who worked at Fuller asked me if he could have lunch with me. I'd never met him before. And he says, oh, this is a very good book. Africans will love it. I said, it's not even out yet. What do you mean to love it? Oh, just the title, Participation in Suffering and Glory, because we know that theology, but Americans don't. We, we assume that we should avoid suffering, and Jesus invites us to participate in his suffering. And when we do so, uh, the self begins to be stripped away. The way that I think about it is all kinds of stuff is encrusted around us through sin to protect us from really the raw, exposed, naked person before God with nothing to protect us. And suffering strips that away. We have nothing else. And any of us who have suffered deeply know we're at wit's end. We have nowhere to turn uh, except to Christ for care. And that seems to be a part of his design is not that we would avoid suffering, but when we enter into it, we enter into it with Jesus Christ. So that leads me to another question. And forgive me, I was trying to look up in the reference in my notes that I had taken. You mentioned that the Great Commission, oh, here it is. The Great Commission really wasn't considered by everyday Christians until it gets into the vernacular in 1664. That's in one of the footnotes that you mentioned. And yeah. I've heard others say the same. Um, I had a conversation and I, this is, this is bringing out kind of our, our cultural moment right now where I had Vishal Mangawadi on the show and Vishal took me in a direction that I was not anticipating. And we're actually preparing a response for it because he's called it the third education revolution. And he mentioned in the moment, he said that Matthew 28, 19 through 20 was not referring to people groups. Now you actually say that it is. He said it's referring to nation states. You actually say it's not. I'm not trying to put you against Vishal. That's not my point. My point is he mentions that we have to get back to catechesis and this education part, which I think we both would agree with. There is this catechesis idea within the family. And you mentioned the other book, Patient Ferment, and how the early church grew yeah. it wasn't necessarily by evangelistic outreach. It was by hospitality, table fellowship, the, the habitus, as you mentioned, the firm, the, the, getting into that. My question, though, is in this moment, I'm seeing the nationalist tendency to say 
the very foundation of Christianity in America or America, Western civilization is the Bible. This is what Vishal is saying in his book, How How the Bible Made Your World. This is his concept. So we have on this one side, this Christian response that says, we need to get back to this part of it because it's the very foundation upon everything in which we find freedom, justice, uh, equality, education, technology, all that stuff. And yet we have this other kingdom, which he was lambasting. He actually singled out Moody Bible Institute and Biola. He said is the progenitors of it. He said that it focused on the other worldly nature at the, at the, at the default of not educating lawyers and doctors. And he says, that's why in the Supreme Court now we have Jews, we have Catholics, but we have no Protestants because we have no educational part of it. How do you, and I'm not trying to get you to respond to him, but I'm looking at our cultural moment where I see these different factors played out. One is saying we have to fight against these evil forces and we, we fail to understand what we have. And the other one says, and I don't hear anybody saying this anymore, leave it be. I have people getting engaged, but I look at the global church and I go, they suffered. What, what are we, what do we need yeah. to do here? What's the proper response and how can mission and this history help guide us in this? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I would have to say that uh, there was no concept of the modern nation states in Jesus' time. It was tribes or it was empire. And the empire controlled various tribes. Europe was tribal. Mm-hmm. Okay, there was no such thing as a nation state. And they, they were tribes and they were expanding. They were moving around. The same with that. Africa was tribal. And uh, in both of those tribal areas, Christianity grew among tribes and often the only way it could finally grow is if eventually a prince or a king or a queen was converted. Now, that doesn't mean the whole tribe was converted. All the Celts or all of the uh, Goths, you know, were converted. A lot of them are wearing black nail polish today. <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to do that. I, I, hadn't, I hadn't heard you laugh for about five minutes. I was concerned. <laughs> <laughs> But that, but that was that was tribal. They didn't have nation states in, in uh, Jesus' time. Jesus never would have thought about that. He's thinking about the Gentiles. So the Gentiles are all his people are not Jews. And it's going to go out to all of them. And how are they identified? Most every tribe, every Gentile, every nation is identified by their totem, their god, their ancestor. Athena for Athens. Luke for the Celts. And you, you could just yeah. name, name them. You know, Baal for you know. So they all had their God and they all had the religion built around that. And again, that's an ideology. That's an idol. And it all tends towards violence. And now he says all the nations, which means there's one God over all. There is actually the potential for peace and not violence when you have one God over all. It's, it's an amazing thing. Nobody ever thought about it. And Chinese, the Chinese would have the, the kitchen God. They have the kitchen God's wife. They would have the God of the hearth. You know, so everything have your little God and deity and everything split up. But now you have God ruling over all. And so ethics is universal. Everything that you do matters. Everything. But if you're in a ritualistic religion, you just got to do the rituals. Then you can do whatever you want. Treat your wife however you want to. It doesn't matter. Oh, no. If there's one God over everything, everything matters. Absolutely everything. Now. Nation state, Jesus could not have imagined converting nations. There were no nations like that at that time. And he never said convert the emperor. As a matter of fact, well, render unto Caesar. Yeah, that's his thing kind of thing. And Paul, uh, what about before Agrippa, before Felix, before, you know, in, in Acts, the last chapters of Acts, he's appearing there. He hopes that they'll come along and join the faith, but that's not his goal. 
his goal is to reach all of the people in every town and every village. And so Christianity, because there's one God over all, is to penetrate all levels of society and all breadth of society, all of the arts, not just the government. OK, not just the courts. We want more Christian laws rather than less Christian laws, of course. But listen, his kingdom is not of this world. OK, and so he never came to create a, a, a kingdom in this world. And whenever that happens, I ask this question. Was it good that Obama identified himself as a Christian? Was it good that George Bush, both of them, identified themselves in Christians as they bombed people in Afghanistan and Iraq? Is that what Christians do? Is it, was that a good thing? Well, it was a good thing that George W. spent more money than anybody else to help stop the spread of AIDS in Africa. And that came out of his Christian faith, I believe. But we should not ever expect the Christian nation. That kind of talk and also the talk, I, I talk about it uh, in, in the book about the talk of Jesus has to return to Israel and Israel is God's chosen people and the temple will be rebuilt. I do not think that was Jesus' intent at all. As a matter of fact, that ideology ideology has created the decimation of Christianity in the Middle East. More Christians, Christianity has been in rapid decline since the beginning of the formation of Israel in the Middle East. And uh, that's just a fact. And that, that doesn't come from good theology. That theology really developed in the 19th century in Great Britain. So history is very important, by the oh, way. No. So that's actually one of the pillars of our, our ministry. We want to help people look to the scriptures, but also to, to link to the past, to be able to understand, because that helps us to see yeah. the here and now. And it, it, we want to make sure that we're not guilty of the chronological snobbery. And, and, yeah, and also yeah. link to global voices. That's the third pillar we have. Yeah. And then learn how to embody the faith, which you also mentioned as you were referencing the patient ferment of the early church. You were talking about the expansion yeah. of the early church and you addressed in the book some of the, the ways that you were taught how the church thrived and grew. And, and that was actually the right. same things I had learned too. Now there's right. a different understanding. We went, we went to the same <laughs> seminary. <laughs> Hopefully you're changing that now. <laughs> we, yeah, we're, we're teaching a little differently now, Trevor. Thanks for asking. <laughs> um, but how, do, how can we help take what you've shown us in this, in this book? And it is a very good book. It was challenging for me in parts. Uh, honestly, when you get into different aspects of it, you mentioned even the last theological position. That's a position that I was raised in. And it's, it's, it's yeah. one that's made me stop and evaluate to go, okay, how's that? And listening to Vishal saying that, have we yeah. failed to educate and permeate these different aspects of society and how much of our modern theology has contributed to that? And honestly, I think it has largely in, in certain circles because the idea that the world is going to burn, we don't have any interaction with it. That's a, that's a problem. That's, that's a massive issue. Yeah. And we need to be able to permeate, fulfill Christ's mission wherever we are, which is again, part of Apollos water. Uh, as you, we finished up because I know we're coming to the end of our time and there's so much of the book that I wanted to get into that we didn't get a chance to do it. Um, but you mentioned having a faithful reading of Christian history. I want to finish with that. I, I, we didn't even get to talk about glory. Why is it so important to have a faithful reading of Christian history for us now? You know, I think one of the great um, opportunities for pastors is to go back and read church history with eyes of faith 
and how they could, how, how this can speak to their congregation today. There's so many phenomenal lessons if the, if the story is told well and you enter into the story. Uh, for example, I, I did an article long ago on revivals gone wrong or how do renewals or revivals go wrong. And, and part of it is too much of an identification with the nation. Mm. And uh, when you when you have that kind of Christian nationalism, that's where revivals go wrong, because a true revival will always be intercultural, interclass. It'll reach all different classes, international. So a true revival like, you know, the, the Pentecostal revival that began the 20th century, that was a true revival mm. that crossed all barriers. And the Great Awakening in uh, New England and in old England and Wales and Scotland, that was a true revival. It reached slaves, it reached other immigrants, Irish, it crossed all along, and it reached the wealthy and the poor. And so that's the kind of thing that a faithful reading would, would we can speak to today and tell people, now wait, you're real excited about this kind of thing going on here, but you know, history tells us that too much of this kind of Christian nationalism, the, the worst civil war in the world was the Taiping Rebellion. And it was fueled by almost good theology. And I mean, almost good, because just at the end, you know, the leader of the rebellion identified as the brother of Christ. And so then it became very heretical. But he was reading the Bible and he underscored things in the Bible. And he was discipled at first by missionaries. And so there's a good argument for more thorough theological education, mm. uh, because then he ended up uh, what was it 30 to 50 million people died in the Taiping Rebellion. Uh, right around the time of our civil war. And we complained about hundreds of thousands dying. Nothing to be compared about that. And it was fueled by bad theology. Hmm. So uh, a faithful reading will help us to be aware of those kind of things. And we can learn a lot about what happens when you have narcissistic leaders or leaders that aren't accountable uh, throughout history. Why, are we, why, do we, why do we continue putting up with that? Uh, why don't we learn from what's happened in the past? You may not like the Anglican system. It doesn't have to be Anglican. It can be Presbyterian. It can be Baptist with really good deacons that are accountable as opposed to deacons who just do what the pastor says and the pastor leads like a, an autocrat. Uh, but, you know, structures, accountability, so many of the things, uh, finances and money, uh, the huge amounts of money that Christians waste. Mm. And uh, we can learn a lot about the spending of money on ourselves rather than on the poor. The, the amazing things that are done, some of the great leaders that we all know about in the history of the church have denied themselves, lived lives of near poverty in order for others. And you contrast that with some of these great pastors today who are so famous, and some of them, I won't mention their names now, ended in tragedy because of uh, mishandling of money or sexual problems and everything. But the great, you know, the Mother Teresa, the St. Francis, St. Clair, we go on and on. Uh, they they will live in our memories because they had tremendous impact because of the way they emptied themselves. So a faithful reading of history would lift those things up. And you might think, well, I can't, I, you know, I've thought about this often. I can't be a St. Francis. I think I've got a wife and four kids and all the grandkids and everything. But I can choose to live more simply. And I can choose to find ways of connecting with the homeless and I can choose to help other people visit those in prison and set that as a priority. Uh, and I, that comes from, from reading history. Mm, that is a good thought to end the show today. I want to thank you for coming on the show. I know your time is, is not limited at all. You have anything to do with being a seminary president. <laughs> but I, 
Thanks. Thanks for giving me. Thanks for talking to me because I don't I don't have anybody here to talk with. <laughs> Scott, thank you for coming on Apollo's Watered. Boom. <laughs> there, there are so many people that I talk to on this show, and there's so many of them that I want to talk to a bit more. However, sometimes you know that once you've gone through the time, you've kind of exhausted the subject, at least presently. But I want to just probe more. I have so many more questions for him. I mean, there is so much in this book that I didn't even get close to asking about. But he's a busy guy and was really gracious with his time. And I want to thank him again for coming on the show. Like I said in the conversation, when I started the book, I wasn't sure where he was going. But I really do appreciate his time, cross-glory approach to Christian history. It gave me some new and different handles or ways to look at it, and I know it will give that to you as well. And the fact that he comes to this subject as a missiologist, I love missiology. Missiology is the study of how mission is being worked out where we are with all of who we are. And this is from someone who cares deeply about bringing the gospel to other cultures. He cares deeply about bringing the gospel into your world and has lived around the world which really brought out the importance of history, Christian history, and how it shapes how you see and interact with the world. The very idea of time moving forward, that is heading towards something instead of a vicious cycle of repeating growth and destruction, is actually really remarkable if you stop and think about it. It can offer a real hope to people without hope. It also made me think about the conversation we have had with people like Vishal Mangalwadi and Chris Watkin and Dan Strange, among others, that often these secular impulses that are in conflict with traditional Orthodox Christianity are actually built upon Christian ideas. They just tried to strip the foundations away, and it's no wonder when it goes bad. But there is hope. Because the very impulses that people have are based in Christian ideals. So when you put the cross back at the center, you actually live out the faith you claim. And you can show other people a better way. We can show that, as Daniel Strain showed us. In Christ, God subversively fulfills our longings. You can get to true hope. I can get to true hope, true peace. Because ours is a God that is actually big enough to unite us to save us. You know, we have to be honest about our own history as the church. We get things wrong as well as right. We, we have to be upfront and honest with that. I get so tired of everyone highlighting the, the good and they don't talk about the negative because we need to have both, especially if we're going to be authentic and real with people. And we need to be able to look at that history so we can learn from it. And when we do... You can live more faithfully in your pursuit of Christ's mission. I can live more faithfully in the pursuit of Christ's mission. Together, we live faithfully in the pursuit of Christ's mission. And if you are interested in going deeper into this subject, and I recommend, I mean, I know not everyone's going to do that, but I hope that many of you out there will. I recommend you checking out Dr. Sunquist's book, The Shape of Christian History. We were really a barely, I mean, that happens all the time on this show. We're, ba we're barely able to scratch the surface. All the time. I feel like we're just snorkeling and we're swimming on top of the surface. We're looking underneath and going, wow, that's really pretty. But we want to go down deep. And it's, it's a good book. It's a very fascinating book. It's an eye-opening book. And it's going to expand your mind, deepen your understanding of mission, and give you really the ammunition you need to battle well 
and confidently as you pursue Christ's mission where you are. Now, before we close out our episode today, I want to share with you some of the feedback we've been receiving on our show. Now, every so often, we want to highlight some of those brave men and women who seek to water their worlds, like yourself. And today's waterer comes via a poll on our YouTube channel. And I put a question out there, who was your favorite guest that we've had on our show? And Theology Mukbang, that's the the YouTube handle right there, spoke of Kelly Capic. Now, he just mentioned Kelly Capic, and I said, well, why? Now, I'm assuming it's a guy, so forgive me if it's not. But when I asked, what was it about Kelly that really brought it out for you? This is the response that I got. It was a deep conversation on very interesting and important topics. The topic covering beauty, for me personally, was an eye-opener. It is not a waste to buy those flowers. And the study done on planting more trees in a certain area, reducing the crime rate, shows that practicality is not always the way to go. Also, the gentle engagement with Piper's work, Don't Waste Your Life, although Piper's name was not mentioned, was a much-needed critique. In this episode, you also covered the sad reality of pastoral suicide which directly and indirectly connects to the idol of efficiency and productivity in the West, as well as the neglected values of doing and assigning a certain task for values such as giving a person's person dignity and building friendships. Without even mentioning the discussion over AI, the episode provided deep foundational answers to thoughts surrounding the ethics of AI. There are a lot of beneficial things that one could pull from this episode, plus The icebreaking questions in the beginning were fun and informative. I love that. Thank you for listening and commenting. Theology mukbang. (laughs) And if you have a comment on what the show has done to help you so that you can water your world, please don't hesitate to reach out and contact us via any of our social media pages. And be sure to check out this conversation as well as any of our other conversations via our YouTube channel. I want to thank our Apollo Swatter team for watering the world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollo Swatter. Stay watered, everybody. I